This is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, when we remember the final days of Jesus' life. And that's what we've been going over. We began looking at these events on Wednesday, starting with his anointing at Bethany. Now we've arrived at the triumphal entry. This was the hour that Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples had not come yet. But now the shroud is lifted and the people openly hail him as King and Messiah as he rides into Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But while this was the most glorious day of Jesus' life, the pinnacle of his popularity, we know that despite the applause of the crowds, it was not to last. Before the end of this week, Jesus is going to be flogged, mocked, and crucified. We can already see the cracks forming in this story when the Pharisees come and command him to silence his disciples, which leads to his famous words about the rocks crying out. Even then, at the triumphal entry, the disciples of Jesus were under pressure from the world to be silent. We face the same pressures today. Throughout the centuries around the world, Christians have been shamed and tortured and even killed in order to force their capitulation and their silence. The world does not understand us and even hates us because we are not like them. We serve a different king and we are looking for a different kingdom. Jesus warned us in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I am concerned that the church has lost this understanding. Jesus told the Pharisees that it was impossible for him to silence his disciples. But since then, so many have given in to that pressure. Not very many years ago, you remember the song Jesus Freak from DC Talk, you remember? That song made separation from the world. It was a badge of honor for Christians. It was cool to be different. But I don't think that that attitude prevails anymore. Somewhere along the line, we started to believe that distinction from the world was a bad thing. It seems now we're more concerned with soothing the misgivings of the world and seeking their approval. But Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Christ told the Pharisees that if his disciples were to grow silent, the very rocks would cry out. It's a powerful image, but we tend to view it incorrectly. This is not a poetic description of creation worshiping its creator. The rocks crying out would be a disaster. It would mean that God's people had failed to live up to the task that he had given them because there was no one left to speak. God will be glorified, regardless of the insecurities of men, even if he must compel the stones of the earth to do it. But by the grace of God, we must not give in to the demands of the world. We must embrace our status as strangers and sojourners and raise a voice of praise, even if we must do so in the cultural wilderness. We're going to run through four points today that work together to teach the lesson of this passage. Number one, we are citizens of a different kingdom. Number two, the world pressures us to conform. Number three, when the church gives in, the rocks cry out. And number four, we must resist the pressure to conform. Don't worry, we'll go through all four of those again. But it all amounts to the same message. Let's read Luke 19, 35 through 40 together. And they brought it to Jesus, that is the donkey, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. For the last few weeks before this story, Jesus has been moving south from Galilee through Samaria and Judea to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was one of the mandatory feasts for all Jewish men to attend, ending with Passover on that Friday. As he made his way closer, the crowds grew and grew, with new disciples being added every day from all the pilgrims on their way down to the capital. And before Jesus made his final descent from the Mount of Olives, before he came down from Bethany to Jerusalem, he sent two disciples to retrieve a colt, the foal of a donkey that had never been ridden before. And when he mounted and began to descend to the city, the multitudes erupted. They cheered and rejoiced and sang, it says, with a loud voice. Imagine if you're in the city and you hear from outside the walls the noise of thousands upon thousands of voices shouting as they came down, getting louder and louder. It must have sounded like thunder. Who is this? And you go out to see. According to verse 38, they were singing Psalm 118. This is one of the Psalms of Ascent that was traditionally sung on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, rich with messianic prophecy. And the refrain of the people was, Hosanna, meaning, save us, save us now. And that comes from verse 25 of that psalm. They threw their cloaks down on the ground as if Jesus were too wonderful to tread on the bare earth. And John 12, 13 tells us they broke off palm branches and they began to wave them in the air. Hence the name, Palm Sunday. What was so special about this day? Why did the people respond like this? Jesus had been to Jerusalem before. This is his probably third time during his ministry. What's so special about this day? Why do they respond like this? Because in finishing the journey the way he did, Jesus deliberately fulfilled a prophecy from the Old Testament. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. All the whispers and speculation about who Jesus might be. They would have been building on the way down to Jerusalem. The rumors had filled the land of Israel. And now, here he comes, riding down the Mount of Olives on a colt, the foal of a donkey, just like Zechariah said. By waving these palm leaves, the Jews were calling for revolution. Palm leaves were a national symbol for the Jews. They signified the rebellion of the Maccabees that had finally thrown off Greek rule from Israel. They stamped it on their coins in memory of their own independence. They saw Jesus coming and they believed that their deliverance from Roman oppression had finally come. And with some good reason. Zechariah 9.8, the verse before that, said that no oppressor shall again march over them. So this crowd is not so much a spiritual response as it is a patriotic response. The Jews believed they had finally found the man that would lead them to freedom. Knowing all that, can you understand why the Pharisees were so worried? 
The Pharisees were an influential group in Israel. They had seats on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. They understood the present situation. And the present situation was that Judea was on its last chance with the Roman Empire. Rome ruled Jerusalem. They had occupied the land for almost 100 years. They had brutally put down every rebellion. They had built the Antonia Fortress to look down over the temple courts. They had sent the cold-hearted Pontius Pilate to crack down on Jewish unrest. And now, here comes Jesus of Nazareth, riding into Jerusalem with a picture ripped straight out of the Old Testament. Thousands flock to see him. They're waving nationalistic symbols in the air, and they sing songs of deliverance from oppressors. The Romans are already on guard. Millions of people would have come to the city for the feast. Jesus was putting the peace of Jerusalem in danger, and so they told him to silence the crowds. The rulers of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests, were concerned with the world and its systems. They evaluated threats and ideas based on the rules and realities of the world. For example, after Lazarus' resurrection, they had a council about what to do about Jesus. And they articulated their chief concern in John eleven forty eight, saying, If we let him go on like this, that's Jesus, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And that was when they decided that Jesus must die. But Jesus did not operate on the same level as them. All his life and ministry, he refused to be dragged into a political position. And he refused to take sides on issues that were not spiritually relevant. He taught his people to live and think differently than anyone else. That's why he refused to silence his disciples. When he was dragged before Pilate and asked about the kingdom that he was always speaking about, he said in John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Not of this world. That's the second time we've read that phrase this morning. A Christian is not of this world. He is different. He is separate from everyone else. This is our first point. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are citizens of a different kingdom. Peter would call us sojourners and exiles in 1 Peter 2.11. A sojourner is a traveler. An exile is someone living in a land that is not his own. Both of them speak of temporary status. In 2 Peter, he would twice refer to his own body as a tabernacle or a tent, a temporary residence. The writer of Hebrews would compare us to Abraham, who left his old home to come to a new one, willing to live as a stranger there while awaiting the promise. Hebrews 11.13 says that people of faith are strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 13.14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You, as a Christian, are from a different world than everybody else. You might say that Alabama and California are two different worlds. I was born in California, barely remember it. Now I live in Alabama. And it's true. We talk differently, we vote differently, we even eat different foods. Whenever I visit California and I try to strike up a conversation with the cashier, they look at me like I'm trying to sell insurance to them. But this pales in comparison to your status as a Christian. It's more like this. Speaking of California, Disneyland has a show called The Country Bear Jamboree. It's got big, life-size animatronic bears, and they sing, okay? 
My favorite number was called Two Different Worlds. It was featuring a bear in swim trunks and snorkeling gear singing to his girlfriend. And the tragedy was he had fallen in love with an octopus. And that was the joke. It was the bear falling in love with an octopus. And he sang a song called Two Different Worlds. I think so. That's much closer to what we're talking about. It's not as if there are slight differences of culture. Two different worlds, Christians and the world. We are citizens of a different kingdom. When Jesus rode to Jerusalem, he had come to herald a kingdom, but it was not a kingdom of this world like the people thought. The world is a kingdom of nations and parliaments and people. They have to face things like war and famine and disease and public opinion. Our kingdom is not like that. Our kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. There will be no more crying or sickness or pain or death. It's a kingdom of righteousness and light with no darkness in it. Our kingdom has not come yet, but it will. And in the meantime, we are to live as good citizens of that kingdom. So we live in the United States of America. We work and we vote and we raise families, but our hearts are set on the kingdom that is to come as our true homeland. God's kingdom has a different set of laws than the one that we live in now. The world has its laws and taxes and government, and that's all fine. It also has its unwritten laws, laws of morality and ideas and behavior. Everyone in the world follows a cultural code. However, we are not bound by the laws of men, but by the law of the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. We are not overly concerned with the preferences and opinions of men because we have the truth of God's word. In the Bible, God has revealed what is right and true to us, and we follow that standard over any rule the world might throw at us. Our kingdom has a different mission. Every country has a strategy. Every country has a goal. They have an angle. Maybe they want to reclaim territory. They want to build their economy. Our nation wants to spread rights and liberties to as many people as possible. But our mission as Christians is different. Our mission was given to us by Jesus Christ himself to make disciples and spread the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Make no mistake about it. Our mission is not charity work or social engineering. It is evangelism. Some of that stuff may happen along the way, but the gospel is our mission. And of course, we have a different king. Our king is the king of kings the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We honor our governors and kings, of course, because Jesus has told us to. Our ultimate authority is not the president, but the Christ. It is to him that we have bent the knee and sworn loyalty. Now, to the average listener, this all sounds very weird. <laughs> it almost sounds treasonous. There are some kings and dictators that have certainly thought it was treasonous, but it's the truth. When brought before the council, Peter gave the final word on this issue. Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. We have passed out of this world and into the sphere of God's grace, and that compels everything that we do. With such fundamental differences, we should not expect to be like the world. They believe this world is all there is. We are looking for a heavenly city. They believe the will of the people or the word of the king is law. We trust the infallible word of God. They view the problems and struggles of the nations as the top priority while we go about the mission of evangelism. They serve a king they can see. We worship Jesus Christ. And because of this, these two groups, the world and the church, will evaluate situations differently and come to different conclusions. 
The disciples of Jesus saw the triumphal entry as a day of celebration and joy. But the Pharisees could only dread the political implications. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. We're not operating on the same level. We think and believe differently. And that inevitably leads to conflicts of opinion. The Pharisees told Jesus to silence his disciples on that day, but Jesus would not listen. The Bible tells us to pray that we may live quietly and go about our lives, even in the midst of strong cultural disagreement. But the world does not always afford us that luxury because we are citizens of a different kingdom. The Pharisees were not content to allow Jesus and his disciples to have their celebration, even though they disagreed with it. No, you see, they stepped in to silence them by going right to the man himself. And this is our second point. The world pressures us to conform. The world pressures us to conform. And this is exactly what the Pharisees had done throughout Jesus's ministry. They questioned him. They challenged him. They even tried to trap him in his words and actions. One time they deliberately brought a man with a withered hand into the synagogue to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath day. Why? They were trying to expose him as a lawbreaker before the people and to have a legal violation they could hold over his head to keep him quiet. Jesus got the better of them in that situation. You can read it in Luke chapter 6 if you like. But they did not give up. In fact, Jesus' days during this following week after Palm Sunday would be full of religious leaders coming in to try and embarrass him with difficult questions. Look what they'd ask him in Mark 12, 14 through 17. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God. They're trying to butter him up. They're trying to set him up, really. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? There's the sucker punch. But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Calls him out. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The people demanded that Jesus view the world their way. They gave him two options, both of which were limited by their material view of the world. Pick a side, Jesus. But he was able to provide a third answer because he was part of a different kingdom and would not capitulate to their pressures. The world loves to use phrases like live and let live or coexist. Have you seen those bumper stickers? They use symbols from every religion and social group to form all the letters. And the idea seems plain enough, right? And on one level, it's even an idea we can get behind. I agree, let's get along. But you know that if a car has that bumper sticker, it will have others. <laughs> and it's never the Muslims that offend these people. It's never Jews or homosexuals. It's always obvious that that message is aimed at Christians. The world is always exerting pressure on the Christian church to make us conform to their kingdom. It is clear to them that we are different. We stand out like a sore thumb with our values and behaviors. And the world can talk about tolerance all they want. But if there's going to be a Super Bowl commercial trying to teach a social lesson, it will inevitably run counter to something that Christians believe and hold dear. And the more any other group aligns itself with what we believe and teach, the more pressure they will face as well. God's people have always had to deal with the pressures of the world. You remember the book of Daniel. That Daniel and his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were brought from Jerusalem to the courts of King Babylon. 
They were given new names honoring new gods, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, new foods, a new education. And now for a while, they were able to insist upon their separation, eating only vegetables, praying only to the Lord. But there came a time in Daniel 3 when Nebuchadnezzar commanded all of his officials to bow down and worship the golden statue he had erected. When the three companions of Daniel refused, it says in Daniel 3.19, he was filled with fury and the countenance of his expression was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he cast them into the fiery furnace. The world will put up with Christians and their oddities for a while. They're fine with our lame worship music and our modest dress. They're fine with us tithing, quoting Bible verses on Facebook and insisting on taking Sundays off. But should a Christian decide to run for office or speak out on a social issue, the clamor begins to shut these evangelical bigots up. I had ancestors during the American Revolution. They were Moravians and therefore pacifists and they refused to fight. You may disagree, but that was their firm biblical conviction. And they were sentenced to hard labor for taking no stance on the issues of the day. Even today, in the midst of the quarantine, people have vocally blamed Christians who've still held church services for the groups in New York that are trying to do charity work but insisting that the volunteers be Christians. The minute things get serious, the knives come out and their expression changes. The countenance changes like Nebuchadnezzar. Christians were tolerated in Rome until they refused to burn incense to Caesar. And then they were thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. This is because the world does not acknowledge the existence of the kingdom of God. We are operating on two different planes, and the world cannot abide that. We may take the issues just as seriously as they do, but since they do not acknowledge the possibility of a spiritual solution, they demand that we act as if we believed like they do. Only Christians are asked during Senate confirmation hearings if they're able to set aside their beliefs during a court case. Whether they view us as a threat or an insult, or an inconvenience, the world has declared secularism to be neutral and faith to be aberrant. And for those who do not agree, there is immense social pressure to bend the knee. How does this pressure come? It comes through mockery. Like the regional rulers who mocked Nehemiah when he was trying to build the wall. A fox could knock it down, they cried. I'm sure every one of you has been mocked for your faith. When the fellows at work are heading out to the strip club and you say, no, thank you, there's all kinds of blasphemies hurled your way. It comes through shame, like the tweets and the op-eds that are published today. The princes that surrounded Nehemiah tried to cajole him into letting them help, calling his integrity into question. Shame can be a powerful tool, especially for young people. And there's no shortage of media personalities and college professors who are willing to browbeat Christians into submission. They don't care if you agree as long as you shut up. It comes through ostracization, where Christians are pushed to the side, not allowed to participate in society because of their faith. Nehemiah's opponents wrote letters to the emperor to have him recalled or at least forced to stop construction on the wall. Today, for example, Christians in many Islamic and atheistic countries are not allowed to hold public office. They're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to hold property. For our part, Christians have already been hauled into court for not conforming to somebody's political agenda. How long until Christianity itself becomes grounds for being canceled, as it's called? How long, I wonder. It comes through outright violent persecution. Nehemiah's rivals tried to lure him to a peace conference where they were going to assassinate him. In Japan, in 1638, during the Shimabara Rebellion, Christians were crucified on crosses out past the tidal line, and they were drowned in agony as the waves came in. 
Throughout history, Christians have spent as much time in the dungeon and the gulag as they have in the seminary or the sanctuary. And lastly, this pressure can come in the form of infiltration. Nehemiah went home for a time, and when he returned to Jerusalem, Tobiah, one of his most cunning adversaries, had a room in the temple set up. If we cannot be stopped, the world will send activists and false teachers into the church who care nothing about the gospel, but only want to further their own ideas through denominational institutions. This is more prevalent than I think many of us would care to admit. Now the issues that give rise to that pressure are different for every culture, although there are similarities. Every nation has its own moral and ideological shibboleths that we are all expected to accept. For us, we face pressure to accept naturalism, that this world is all there is and all there ever will be. It's amazing. Scientists will debate among themselves. They'll debate Darwin. They'll debate different philosophies. But the minute a Christian tries to join the conversation, they close ranks and they try to silence somebody who dares to believe in more than what he sees. Lawrence Krauss, who's a famous scientist and atheist, said that teaching your children to believe that God created the world is child abuse. The world pressures us to embrace a licentious view of sexuality. We believe in strict morality as concerns sex. With settled beliefs on fornication, divorce, adultery, gender. We're not debating these things anymore. And the world cannot accept that. Because their entire lifestyle depends on an attitude of who's to say. When somebody is bold enough to say, that's a threat to them. And I think unless I am seriously mistaken or the Lord is merciful, this is where the hammer is going to fall in our generation. We're pressured to embrace the world's definition of equality. That there's no distinction between men and women. That every idea is equally valid. The world has taken that lesson of love and freedom that we taught them, first of all, and turned it into a weapon to beat down the church. Now, Christian universities, even churches, are being threatened with tax penalties and more for failing to implement enough diversity and equity programs or willing to perform marriages for whoever asks. And you might say, well, I don't have a problem with diversity. It doesn't matter what the cause is. When the world begins to dictate to the church, it's never a good thing. And we are pressured to embrace the same media and entertainment that propagates those ideas. You might say, well, Tyler, you sort of dropped off the end there. We were talking about morality and naturalism and philosophy, and now you come back to TV, really? Yeah, really. It's not a small thing. You can try to shout someone down, and they'll only resent you for it, even if you do manage to get them to do what you want. If somebody came into your face and said, deny Jesus Christ, you wouldn't do it. But you wrap it up in a slick, cutting-edge, can't-miss package, and people will line up to pay for it. The individual creators, they might not be that devious. They might not be setting out to get rid of Christians, but our enemy is. And there are many people who would sooner accept a Christian who believes in hell than a Christian who's not willing to listen to sexually explicit music. I've experienced that in my own life. We've been blessed for centuries to live in a nation that has permitted freedom of worship to Christians. Pressure seems to be increasing now. Okay, we must not panic. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, that verse talking about something strange happening to you, how you shouldn't think it's something strange. He's talking, if you keep reading, about insults. He's not so much talking about prison or persecution. He's saying when you are insulted for the name of Jesus. That is the lot of a Christian. We are pilgrims in this world. We are citizens of a different kingdom, remember. Jesus said it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. 
If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The world pressures us to conform. Jesus faced pressure to conform, and you as his disciples should expect no different. Now, when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, he gave an interesting reply. In verse 40, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is our third point. When the church gives in, the rocks cry out. This was the day of Christ's triumphal entry, the day that had been foretold by the prophets. There was not a chance that God would allow his son to go unheralded on that day. And so Jesus refused to silence his disciples. Rome or no Rome, Pharisees or no Pharisees. If he had, the earth itself would have split open in a mighty roar of praise. But that would have been a tragedy. Daniel had prophesied the arrival of the Messiah to the day. Zechariah had prophesied his means of transportation. The psalmist had written the songs ahead of time. If the rocks were to cry out, it might have made for a great story, but it would have meant that the Jews had failed to recognize their Messiah. God was going to have praise on that day, but it was not for the rocks to cry out. It was for the people of God. If we as Christians capitulate to the pressures of the world, the rocks will cry out. What does that mean? That means that if we are silent when God has told us to speak, or if we hide the light of the gospel under a bushel, then God will find another way to get the job done. God is not dependent upon us. In fact, in Revelation 14, after the rapture, the Lord enlists angels as evangelists to spread the gospel around the world. If the church silences itself, perhaps the Lord will send an unforeseen revival to a community that never knew God. He'll raise up new preachers and evangelists from people who never heard the gospel because of disobedient Christians. God forbid that the rocks would ever cry out in our day. Is it even possible for the church to reach such a point? It certainly is. The church of Jesus Christ can reach a point where it is totally ineffective. We can do this in two ways. First, by failing to live as God has called us to live. Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your life is to be a testimony to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ means something, that it has transformative power. If you cover up everything religious about yourself, and you do your best to seem just like everybody else, you have neutralized the possibility of Christian witness in your life. At every job I've ever had, I have been asked why I speak without cursing. And my answer has always been the same, because I'm a Christian, and I'm not permitted to allow any corrupt speech to come out of my mouth. Despite the taunts that I have endured, and believe me, I have, it has always placed a spotlight on me as a man of God, and I've been able to share the gospel with somebody every time. Would you forfeit the possibility to share the gospel with somebody to avoid embarrassment? But the other way we can become ineffective is if we are silent. Many times the world does not care what we believe as long as we don't talk about it. And Christians are great at coming up with so-called biblical excuses why we do not have to speak about the gospel or the Bible or Jesus. Leaving aside theology for a moment, by the way, we talk about everything that interests us. We post pictures of our breakfast online. So don't tell me that you're too shy to share. You share everything. <laughs> Why wouldn't you share the most important thing? The Bible commands you to speak out. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That was not intended for the apostles. That was intended for you. We are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4:15, To have an answer for anyone who asks, 1 Peter 3, 15. We have to speak out. 
We are the prophetic voice in the world. We cannot allow the world to go to hell before our very eyes. Didn't Jesus teach us better love than that? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. When the salt goes bad, the meat spoils. When the church caves in and goes silent, the world rots. In the Middle Ages, the church grew silent and permitted all manner of barbaric aberrations to be canonized. It took the Lord raising up a rock to cry out, Martin Luther, a little German monk who brought the Bible and the gospel back to the people. We rejoice at the reformation of the church, but that will forever be to the shame of the pastors and teachers who had gone before. Are we so desperate for the approval of the world that we're willing to risk a similar situation? We're so concerned today with calming the concerns of the world. If a statistic comes out that the public thinks Christians are unloving, we will preach acceptance until the church is sufficiently chastened. If a stand-up comedian mocks Christians for not knowing about the latest trends, we rush to social media to defend our street cred. If the academic community publishes a paper decrying the lack of sensitivity in our Bibles, we rush to alter the translation to their specifications. Why do we care what the world thinks? James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, You adulterous people! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We should not be interested in the approval of people who do not believe in God, hate Jesus Christ, and despise the Bible. We are citizens of different kingdoms. If we somehow manage to gain their approval, we should stop immediately and find out where we went wrong. Woe to you, Jesus said, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The Lord refused to silence his disciples, but we have silenced ourselves. If the church in America and elsewhere does not halt its downward progress, God will be left with no choice but to raise up a rock to do the work. Despite every denomination that has ever been born out of revival, you watch this happen. When the church gives in, the rocks cry out. But as my friend RJ used to say, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to be outdone by a rock. When the Pharisees tried to pressure Jesus to think on their level, he flatly refused. He would not tell his disciples to silence their praise or tone down their worship, and neither should we. This is our fourth and final point. We must resist the pressure to conform. 2 Corinthians 6.17 Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. God has commanded us to be separate from the world. We are sojourners, not citizens. Pilgrims, not partners. People will say that that's really strange, but we know that in fact we are strangers. We are not of this world. We're left with only two choices. We can silence ourselves, shut ourselves in the churches and do our best to look just like everyone else, or we can resist. If we fail to fight, we will fade, and I cannot accept that. It's time for us to recalibrate our hearts and our minds and our Instagram accounts to reflect the authority of the kingdom of God. If people were to look at you and not know anything about you, would they be able to tell that you're a Christian? Or if you tell them, would they go, oh, wow, I didn't know. Oh, that's a tragedy, you guys. The odd thing is, everybody from the New York Times to the Disney Channel is telling us to be different and embrace what makes us special. We hear this all the time. We love to be unique. I'm going to get my own special iPhone cover so that it doesn't look like everyone else's. 
I want to wear what everyone's wearing, but I can't just look like everyone else. I got to find a way to make it my own, right? We love to be unique. So why wouldn't you lean into your identity as a Christian? Take joy in being an outsider because it means you're an insider in the only circle that will ever matter. How do we do this? How do we resist this pressure? I'm going to give three things. Number one, you start by managing your influences. You live in a unique time in history where you can decide who you want to listen to 24 hours a day. You're not stuck with whatever preacher is in your town. You're not stuck with whatever heretic is preaching in the city square. You're not stuck with the books that you had to buy the last time the book wagon came into town. You have access to everything. There is a super abundance of books, movies, music, television that you can access anytime you like. So listen, Christian, curate your influences. It doesn't affect me. Yeah, right. You're not 15 anymore. It's time to move past that, don't you think? Curate your influences. You don't need to be listening to music that is going to acquaint you with perverse sexual acts. Or watching shows that don't teach you anything except how to curse effectively. Fill your mind with the things of God. You have more access to Bible teaching, theology lessons, Bible translations, and background knowledge than ever before. Don't waste it for another 10 episodes. Number two, not only that, but we need to work together on this one, you guys. We as Christians need to let the gospel and the Bible order our conversations. I think we have learned quite enough of the lesson against Christianese, don't you? You know, Christianese, using phrases that sound religious, but you kind of use them hypocritically and no one knows what you're talking about. Fine. We've learned that lesson because it has become an excuse to deride the church. You've seen this, haven't you? Oh, I'm just teasing that the church, we do some funny things. And it turns out that you're really, you're running down the Lord's church in order to get a couple chuckles out of the world. At its worst, I think it has revealed the widespread epidemic carnality of American Christians. When somebody comes out and jokes about whatever uh, commandment that we don't abide by, and everybody kind of chuckles and goes, oh yeah, that's so funny, it's so relatable. Wait a minute, are you saying that we're all secretly ignoring the commandments of Jesus? That's a problem. I think it's time for us to reclaim our interactions as a sanctifying thing. When we meet together, it should never be awkward to talk about God or his works or his word. Choose your friends wisely and don't evaluate a church for its social benefits. Who cares if the people at your church are boring or lame or obnoxious? We've got to stop picking churches that way. We've got to stop picking churches based on demographic details too. The church needs old and young, rich and poor, all nations, all backgrounds. We've got to stop separating ourselves into groups so that we can feel comfortable. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to come together and let Jesus knit us together. That be what we have in common. Together, we can provide the right kind of peer pressure for each other. But number three, ultimately, in order to resist the demands of the world, you have to rest in Christ Jesus. If you cannot strengthen yourself in the Lord, you will look elsewhere for validation. That is always a dangerous thing. But it's not necessary. The Lord has promised to be your all-sufficient Savior. He's your comforter and your teacher and your father and your friend who sticks closer than a brother. Immerse yourself in the things of God, as Paul told Timothy. If you feel like you don't get anything out of the Bible or prayer or church, get out of the shallows, my friend. Don't just read a devotional verse. Study the Bible. Don't just pray. Fast and pray. Don't just go to church whenever you feel like it. Force yourself to go every time and even step up and volunteer somehow. Dive in deep and you will see the wonderful things in the law of the Lord. 
We're never going to be on the same page as the world. Even if we can agree on certain things, we're looking for a heavenly city and we're just passing through this one. You must recognize that and accept it. If you find yourself constantly talking down the church and explaining away any tough Bible passage, you might be capitulating to the pressures of the world. You must resist it. How far? To the point of suffering and death if necessary. Don't spend your life trying to find out the minimum commitment needed to follow Christ. There is no minimum commitment. There's only death. Taking up your cross to die alongside your Savior. The world needs your voice and your testimony. There are people who can only be saved through your ministry. How can we try so hard to be just like the world when the world is desperate and dying in the despair of sin? Our country today faces widespread depression, pornography and opiate addiction, the destruction of the family, and we have the solution in Christ Jesus. We do no one any favors by trying to be just like them. Take up the mantle that's been handed down to you by the saints who have gone before. It has never been easy to be a sincere Christian. Read your history. But there have always been faithful men and women in God's church. Will you be one? If not, I solemnly warn you today. If you spend your whole life trying to figure out what you can get away with, you may one day find yourself on the opposite side of where you always thought you'd be. The Pharisees loved the law. They claimed to know the Lord. The coming of the Messiah was their greatest hope. But because they could not shake themselves free of the kingdom of men, they found themselves calling for the execution of their Messiah with the haunting words of John 19:15, We have no king but Caesar. We must resist the pressure to conform. Those are our four points today. Number one, we are citizens of a different kingdom. Number two, the world pressures us to conform. Number three, when the church gives in, the rocks cry out. And number four, we must resist the pressure to conform. Jesus did not capitulate on Palm Sunday. He did not capitulate at any time during his ministry. And he did not capitulate in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the pressure was on him to refuse the cross and live not for his Father's kingdom, but for the world's, he said bravely, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross and suffered and died in the ultimate act of renunciation of this world in favor of the next one. And in so doing, he won the victory that opened up citizenship in his kingdom to all who believe. That is what we're living for. And that is what we're waiting for. We have eternal life in the heavenly kingdom waiting for us after death. So why would we live for this short life, this little blip on the timeline of eternity? Your life is like the flower that blossoms today but scorches in the sun, gone before you know it. This life is too short to deserve all of your effort and affection. And this means that we should be filled with pity for the world around us. If this message today causes you to be filled with anger and bitterness, you're like, yeah, Tyler, get him again. You got it all wrong. <laughs> and you need to pray to the Lord to change your heart. because That's not the attitude we ought to have. It is true. 1 John 2.15 tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If, you, if you're defining the world as I have been today, mostly as a corrupt system of wickedness, yes. But there's another sense that we use that word world. A place filled with people destined for eternity in hell. And Jesus, according to John 3.16, loved the world. This is why we can even endure suffering at their hands. Because as Jesus said, they know not what they do. Don't let the rocks cry out, Christian. Pray for the citizens of this world's kingdom. Weep for them. Love them enough to tell them the truth. 
Let your light shine before men with all the brilliance of the glory of God. And if this sounds foreign to you, if the kingdom of God is as unfamiliar to you as a kingdom on the moon, let me say that today can be your day of transformation. This is the hard truth, but you have to hear it. You have offended God by your sins and you are destined to suffer his wrath forever in hell. Death will provide no release for you. Only eternal torment awaits for you beyond the grave. But there's good news. The reason Jesus came down to Jerusalem in the first place was so that he may die on the cross. He took the penalty for your sin on his body on the cross so that I could make this offer to you. Everyone who calls out to God and asks for forgiveness will get it. If you repent of your sins, you say, I'm done. I'm not thinking this way. I'm not living this way anymore. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, if you commit your life to him as the son of God, your new king, your destiny will change forever. You will gain a new citizenship and a kingdom yet to come. There's nothing you must do to earn it. It is the free gift of God. And he's extending it out to you. Why live your life for the fleeting pleasures of this world when there is an eternal kingdom waiting for you on the other side? Well, hold on, you might say. Are you asking me to sign up for all that pressure and persecution you just talked about? Yes, I am. Why? Because the glories of the abundant life in Jesus Christ and the hope of eternity are so wonderful that all the rest of it pales in comparison. So much so that to try and minimize it or to go back to the way we were is utter foolishness. That is the message, Christian. That is a message worth dying for. More than that, it's a message worth living for. Living loud and proud, as they say. Don't expect the love of the world. You are not one of them. If you were of the world, Jesus said, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. If you can accept that today, the pressures will come, but the pressures of the world will hold no more temptation for you than they did for Jesus on Palm Sunday. Never give in, never give up, and never, ever be silent.